Welcome back to the Boundless Voices podcast. My name is Nicole. And I'm Amber. And today we are going to talk about three poems from this collection of poems by Haunani K. Trask. Haunani K. Trask. Yes. Called Night is a Sharkskin Drum. So the first poem that we're going to be talking about. Amber, can you introduce the first poem? Oh, like read it gladly. Okay, okay. Night is a shark-skin drum by Honani K. Trask. Night is a shark-skin drum, sounding our bodies black and gold. All is a flame, the uplands a shush of wind. From hale ma'u-ma'u, our fiery akua comes. E pele, e pele, e pele. I think that that was a good poem to name the anthology after. Me too. I feel like throughout this anthology, what, what do we call her? Dr. Trask? Is she a doctor? Mm-hmm. I'm Isn't sure she, she is. She must be a doctor. I think throughout this anthology, like in each of the poems, there was some really good like sensory descriptions that I enjoyed. Mm. A lot of these poems are also like, you know, they have really important meaning that's like either like political or like referencing Hawaiian mythology and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And even in the poems where I like didn't entirely understand the things that she was alluding to, I still could appreciate her description. Mm-hmm. Like in this poem particularly, the phrase sounding our bodies black and gold, that was just like so nice to me. I really <laughs> like that line. <laughs> So it's kind of drawing a comparison between like like the sound that the shark skin drum creates mm-hmm. and fire. Yeah, do you want to explain like like where is Hale Ma'u Ma'u? It's a volcano. And then Akua we just talked about before we started recording is a word for god. Yeah. But when it's capitalized as it is in this poem, it's referring to like capital G God. God. Yeah. So I thought that that was interesting because that connotes that it's, you know, the Christian God instead of the Hawaiian mythology gods like Pele. But then what it's referring to when it's saying from Halema'uma'u, our fiery Akua comes, that's referencing Pele because like, you know, Halema'uma'u is a volcano and fiery. Yeah, Pele is the goddess of... Of volcanoes. (laughs) Yeah, and then it addresses her. Yeah, and so it addresses her. So it's kind of picturing like the Christian god as this like destructive and like fiery woman. Mm, that's interesting yeah there's there's kind of a lot of like tension already that i know between like you know hawaiian identity and and christianity you mean within the poem no between just like the hawaiian community in oh general. just in general yeah because there are a lot of like christian hawaiians but then there are some hawaiians who resent christianity because of the imperialistic history that it has over the community and so i think that i think i'm reading way too much into this <laughs> like looking back on this but like i think it's recontextualizing christianity for like the christian god like the all-powerful omnipotent god so i think that's what it's trying to refer to is like pele as like this all-powerful omnipotent goddess and that feels almost like a rejection of the church yeah. because it's it seems like blasphemous to even think of God in terms of, you know, destruction, a, a different 
Well, and even, like, just a different god in Mm. a different mythology or religion. Oh, yeah. And so even here, it's like, I hear that most often when, like, after a hula or a chant, it's like, that's usually how it closes or opens, I think. But what was was interesting... by calling to someone. Yeah, by calling to someone. But what's interesting with, like, Oli is that when a song is dedicated to an ali'i, the ali'i, if they were present, they would answer back by saying that they were there and and they were, like, listening. And And the ali'i is the royal ali'i is um, a member of the ruling class and can you explain what an oli is an oli is a chant Mm -hmm. so what it's asking for is it's calling pele to come because even the words eh, pele like if i were to be like eh nicole you know that's like calling (laughs) you Mm. yeah it's like me addressing you yeah and then in the chant it's asking you to return my call so oh, it's, it's like, like a call and response. Yeah. So it's trying to summon her, pretty much. So night is a shark skin drum. Shark skin drums kind of act as a way to summon, quote, end quote, the fire. Because shark skin drums can be used in Oli and, you know, Hula too. So it is consistent thematically. So if we were to think of, like, night thematically as being representative as something that can call Pele, the night is something that can call something that Pele is symbolic for. Mm, like, night calls out or draws out that sort of destruction yeah that kind of like destruction but also like regeneration because it's like lava is something that destroys but then also rebuilds and so it's like night is something and i think like if i were to think like thematically what night would mean then i'd think contextually with the rest of the book that night was supposed to symbolize like a hard time you know Mm. do you agree (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think about it in terms of the rest of the book, but it definitely makes sense, especially with Honani K. Trask's activism mm-hmm. and her like political stance, mm-hmm. which we will get to later in this episode. But thinking about how suffering has kind of led or drawn out this fiery passion reaction yeah so i think what it means is it's saying that that suffering especially in like hawaiian culture the hawaiian community draws out a passion for rebirth Mm. and And action yeah and although it's destructive it's still because suffering you know it's suffering (laughs) (laughs) it still can create a new plane So, Nicole, would you like to introduce our next poem? Okay, so our next poem is called Na Makaoka Hai. Yeah. Hey, I'm so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, am I going to read the rest (laughs) of it? Okay. Born from the chest of Haumea, mo'o woman of Kuapa. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Lizard-tongued goddess of Hawaii. Na Makaoka Hai. Sister of Thunder and Shark, Kane he- Kane Hekili. Yep. Kane Hekili. Kuhai. <laughs> Think of it as three words. Kuhai Moana. Yes. Elder of Pele, Pele Honuamea. Kino lao on the wind, in the yellowing tea, sounds of Akuo waking in the dawn. Na maka okahai, eyes flecked with fire, summoning her family from across the seas. Sharks in the shallows, upheaval in the heavens. 
From the red rising mist of Kahiki, the woman of the pit, Pele, Pele Aihonua, traveling the uplands, devouring the foreigner. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh god, there's so <laughs> much. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of like mythology in this one. So let's first go through the first stanza. Okay. So the first like little bit is born from the chest of Haumea, Mo'o woman of Kuapa, lizard tongue goddess of Hawaii, colon, na mako kaha'i. So all of these things are describing Namako Okahai. Yeah. Who is a mo'o, mm-hmm. which is like a lizard. Lizard lady. A lizard-like god. Almost. Spirit. Yeah, spirit. Yeah. Because it calls her like a lizard-tongued goddess. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Haumea is the goddess of fertility. Mm-hmm. And so she's the mother of like all of these mo'o gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that the mo'o are like, they're almost like gods or goddesses, but they're also protectors of fish ponds. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Kuapa is talking about, mm-hmm. which is the wall of a fish pond. And by fish pond, as I just learned i mean i kind of knew already <laughs> but fish pond does not refer to a dinky little pond with a goldfish in it no it refers to like the ponds that they would use to like farm fish to sustain a village yeah so that's the first like little chunk that i yeah. i sectioned off okay <laughs> And so it's describing Namakokahai as a sister of thunder and shark. And then it yeah, lists... Wait, okay, read the, read the next part. Oh, and then okay. Explain. Namakokahai, sister of thunder and shark, Kanehekili, Huhai Moana. So it's saying that Namakokahai is the sister of thunder, who is, thunder is Kanehekili. And or like the god of thunder like n- well, not literally thunder like the gods are like personified through you know their domain oh, yeah. so Pele is lava and like Wakea is the sky oh it's kind of like um like Greek mythology with the sky and the earth what's his name oh Kronos no that's no, time no 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 the, the mom of Kronos Rhea. Gina, no, Gaia, Ga- Gaia, and she's like literally. <laughs> no, not Gina. Oh, Mother Earth, Gina. But yeah, it's kind of like Greek mythology and how like Gaia is the Earth, mm-hmm. but like also. Yeah, it's very similar, I'd say. And so, so thunder, thunder is Kanahekili, mm-hmm. and shark is Kuhai Moana. Mm-hmm. And then it says, Elder of Pele, Pele Honuamea. So, Namako Kahai is Pele's older sister. Well, Pele Honuamea is the alternate name of Pele. So, Pele Honuamea, as we looked up, it basically means like Earth Maker. Pele the Earth Maker. Pele the Earth. Why? <laughs> Because Amber was explaining to me that, okay, so Pele means Pele, like her name. Honua means earth, and then Mea means why. Well, like reason. Reason, Reason, thing. thing. It means a lot of different things, apparently. Yeah. Because I was taught, interestingly, that Mea can be used basically as a placeholder for anything. Like, you can be like, oh yeah, Mea, Mea, in the Mea, to Mea, your Mea. (laughs) 
so it can be a noun, a, a verb, a place, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's very similar to like the word the kind, if you know what it is. The pigeon phrase. Yeah. yeah. And it, if you don't know, it's, it's basically just like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it means. Quote, you know, end quote. Why don't you give an example sentence? Okay. I went to the kind. <laughs> And that could mean, like, I went to, to the that store, place. I went to the mall, I went to, to Gina's. <laughs> so, so, Maya can be used like the kind? Yeah, it's basically like, it can be used as a filler word. So then does it, like, also in the same way as the kind, does it, like, kind of assume that the other person will know what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. But that's not what Maya means in this context. Pelehonua Maya. So, mea can mean thing, person, matter, stuff, object. Pele. Oh, but the verb. Oh, okay. So, mea as an Id- idiom is cause, reason, purpose, means of, because. It's basically saying that Pele is the cause of earth. So, yeah, it, it makes sense. Pele is the creator of earth. Because Honua means earth. So, long story short, when Dr. Trask is addressing Pele as Pele Honua mea, She's addressing one part of Pele's duality, which is Pele as a creator of things. Which is interesting because then at the end of the poem, she addresses her as Pele Ai Honua, which is Pele the land eater. So it's characterizing Pele at the end as something that is destructive. And it even says, it ends with devouring the foreigner, which is a pretty political statement. Yeah, pretty like (laughs) powerful sentence to end on, or phrase to end on. Okay, so... Kino low on the wind in the yellowing tea, sound of a kua awaking in the dawn. So kino low. So kino means body, low means leaf or plant. So it's like plant body. But the official definition given by Dr. Trask is kino low is um, meant to be many forms taken by a god, such as the tea leaf as a form of the mo'o lizard god. So when it's referring the yellowing tea, it's supposed to represent um, namaka okahai. And the wind, because of like how it's Placed is also supposed to be symbolic of namako kahai and these things are the sounds of akua or god awaking in the dawn so again it's a capital a which implies that it's like the omnipotent god so again it's drawing a comparison between like capital g god and these like hawaiian goddesses yeah. mm-hmm. it's characterizing namako kahai as another like omnipotent like all-powerful force and the yellowing tea i thought was interesting because you know yellow is like at least in plants are a form of decay it's like they're dying but also i thought that it was more symbolic of it having a connection to fire in some way because like namako kahai's story is has a lot to do with her battles with her sister because her sister pele yeah her sister pele because they were like fighting over this guy who Namako had as a lover but then was seduced by Pele. And so I thought that the yellowing tea would be representative of not only Namako but also the sisterly battle. Which is interesting because then this next part, I'll read it, is Namako eyes flecked with fire, summoning her family from across the seas, sharks in the shallows, upheaval in the heavens. And 
this part is interesting because Namaka Fahai is the goddess of like the ocean, mm-hmm. right? While Pele is the goddess of like fire and yeah. volcanoes. When it describes Namaka Fahai as having eyes flecked with fire, it's almost like she's like looking at her sister and you know, the sharks in the shallows and upheaval in the heavens is describing the sisters. The sisters and their their conflict mm-hmm. between them. Yeah. Like eyes flecked with fire, it may me think that Pele is reflected in Namako Kahai. So they have like this this internal connection to each other. And or even that like Namako Kahai has her own like fiery spirit even oh, though she's yeah. the ocean. Oh yeah, yeah. And it splits up like the words in her name, Namaka o Kahai. And so I think that that's Honani K. Trask forcing us to look at the meanings of these words. Because na means the, maka means eyes, and o means of, ka means the. And then ha'i was something that I thought was a little tricky because it has like a lot of meanings. So I had to double check. The meaning of ha'i, so it can mean like be like someone else, another person, another place, or elsewhere, but that's a rare definition, I guess. It can also mean to break or snap as a stick, to say, tell, mention, state, declare, confess, edge, or a border, or to sway and bend. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot of different definitions. See, that is why I thought it was confusing. So I interpreted na makokahai to be the eyes of someone yeah of someone else but also namako kahai i think like the traditional believe definition is the eyes of kahai like kahai is an already like established demigod he's described as a handsome polynesian demigod whose exploits were popular in many polynesian mythologies so namako kahai is the eyes of this man but because Honani K. Trust separates Ka and Ha'i, it's asking you to ignore that definition. Yeah, and that makes sense again with the eyes flecked with fire part, because those eyes oh. flecked with fire should belong to Pele. Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, we're, <laughs> we're figuring stuff out. Yeah. Okay, Amber, do you want to read the last bit then? Okay, so from the red rising mist of Kahiki... The woman of the pit, Pele Pele Aihonua, traveling the uplands, devouring the foreigner. So, it's basically describing the battle that Namako Kahai had with Pele in mythology, where they would go all throughout the Hawaiian chain fighting, which is symbolized through mist, you know, red rising mist, like the battle between ocean and fire and when it says from the red rising mist of kahiki the woman of the pit kahiki is another name for tahiti it's basically you know k's instead of t's and so it's referencing how they're from tahiti and not from here these goddesses yeah so it's kind of odd a little bit because it goes pele pele aihonua traveling the uplands devouring the foreigner but it's like who's the foreigner Oh, it's almost like these goddesses are foreigners because they came from Tahiti. Yeah, it's like they're not, like they weren't created in Hawaii, like they weren't born in Hawaii. Like it's drawing a connection to how they were from Tahiti. And Is then, that true in the mythology they're from Tahiti? Yeah, a lot of gods are from Tahiti because like following the migration pattern. Yeah. Like a significant migration pattern happened from Tahiti to Hawaii. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like Maui, I think that's another example. 
where it's like consistent with Tahiti also. And even Kaha'i, he's he's observed in, I believe, Tahitian mythology also. So when it says Pele Pele Aihonua traveling the uplands, it's characterizing Pele as some someone who is destructive because of the you know the name that we explained earlier. And it's traveling upwards devouring the foreigner so i think that um so either traveling the uplands is pele escaping her battle with namako kahai which happens you know in the ocean because that's where namako kahai resides or she's chasing a for like the foreigners who reside in the uplands which could be symbolic of like the foreigners having a higher status in hawaii it's kind of odd though because it focuses so much on the sisters yeah right to end with this i mean even just ending with this description of pele is almost odd odd because the focus is on namako kahai yeah it's like you've got the wrong sister (laughs) (laughs) which is why i thought it was interesting when you said that like maybe it's referring to them as if they're the same person Mm. and like even the the eyes of someone else Mm. it's like you can like see parts of the other one in each of them yeah but like the from the red rising mist that description describes the act of them mixing yeah like water and fire this is tricky Oh, I think what's happening here is everything, even though like the constant battles between sharks in the shallows, upheaval in the heavens, from the red rising mist of Kahiki, the woman of the pit, Pele Pele Aihonua, traveling the uplands, devouring the foreigner. I think what it's saying is that they're all devouring the foreigner. Because it works so hard to draw a connection between all of them, it's saying that they unanimously are devouring the foreigner. So I think it's basically saying that the natural order of everything that rules the Hawaiian plane of existence is working to uh, reject that foreign influence. But it's strange because it draws a connection to how they traveled from Tahiti. Yeah, like they themselves are foreign. Yeah. And so maybe... Oh! Oh, I understand! It's basically saying that everything that is foreign creates unrest in the natural order of the environment. So because it's saying there's sharks in the shallows, which was introduced from the family migrating from Tahiti. There's the family upheaval. of this family of gods. Yes. Okay. There's upheaval in the heavens, which was introduced from their migration from Tahiti. There's lava, this destructive force that is moving all over the place that was also brought from afar. And then it's this battle between water and ocean. I mean, water and fire. Yeah. Which was brought from Tahiti. Yeah. But and then, it kind of parallels the destruction that now foreigners, as in like humans, are bringing to the islands. Yeah. But then devouring the foreigner. So they destroy the environment, but also they destroy themselves almost. Yeah, I think so. Or maybe it's as a response it's like kind of this avenging of the natural environment where all this commotion is happening to stop this foreign influence man that was hard (laughs) but i think we understand do we understand Mm -hmm. i think that that my with my professional opinion i think i would have written the poem without the devouring of the foreigner (laughs) yeah because i think it makes it political when 
it doesn't necessarily need, need to be and it kind of blurs it kind of confuses it a little bit yeah it kind of blurs like the thematic meaning a little bit it takes the focus away from the mythology kind of yeah so if you didn't know honani k trask is a political activist well she was both an activist and a scholar so her main idea that she was advocating for was Hawaiian sovereignty, which can be shown a lot through her like certain poems. One of those poems that we will share today is Dispossessions of Empire. And there are four sections to this poem. Four sections to this poem. And we're going to read each section and then share our thoughts on yep. those sections. Yep. Dispossessions of Empire 1. Aku boats lazing on the aqua horizon, waves of morning, a sea wind sun, salt hanging in the steamy Kona glare, lava black shore rippling along rocky outcrops, porous with lowly. Slow-footed Hawaiians amidst flaunting foreigners, rich Americans, richer Japanese, smelling of greasy perfume, tanning with the stench of empire. So that's the first section. Well, let's go over the Hawaiian terms first, maybe. Okay, so... so the first one is aku, and it's describing boats. Yes, so aku is a type of fish, but like usually how people eat aku is like you leave it in the sun until it's dry, and then how I eat it is I put it in poi and stuff, and it's salty. Okay, so with the context of aku boats lazing on the aqua horizon, waves of morning, a sea wind, sun, salt hanging. It's basically just an ocean scene, right, of like people engaging with their culture and getting that aku so they can eat it. There's also some cool, um, what is it called? Anaphora with the aku and aqua. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Poetics, am I right? Um, what I thought was interesting was the second stanza where it says, In the steamy Kona glare, lava black shore, rippling along rocky outcrops, porous with loli. So the Big Island's kind of known for like having black sand, which is little granulated like lava rocks. So it has again that theme of kind of the after effects of destruction. So I think that kind of creates the context for this whole poem is the after effects of this violent event, which maybe can be interpreted to be like the overthrow or maybe annexation. But what I think is interesting is the particular um, word loli and how it's used in this and so in the glossary loli is defined as as sea cucumber but how i knew the word loli was loli as in change if i replace loli with change instead of the sea cucumber it would be rippling along rocky outcrops porous with change kind of communicating that with this kind of vi like the after effect of this violent event there was a lot of change <laughs> That's so funny that it's the same word for sea cucumber and change. Oh, 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 oh. But the slow-footed Hawaiians amidst flaunting foreigners, rich Americans richer. And then it goes on to talk about empire and the Japanese. I think that by slow-footed Hawaiians, it's communicating how Hawaiians, I think, are slow compared to foreign groups who have come and transplanted into Hawaii, where Hawaiians are disadvantaged while Americans and the Japanese are progressing yeah. in Hawaii. Yeah. And it kind of contrasts that like frenzy to like the way that I read it was like it's contrasting the frenzy of like these foreigners coming and like kind of almost taking over the islands. Yeah, like it has this um ocean scene but then after it introduces Loli and that change 
it kind of talks about the socioeconomic impact of this change. Wow, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'll read the second section. Escape, the currency of travel, lure of colonies, how strange the stranger's ways. White-skinned hominids burning pink against indigenous brown, traveling the blessed isles in aimless journeys. Beckoned, the offerings of mysterious Polynesians, bejeweled Kauai, majestic Maui, volcanic Hawaii, the Hawaiian Islands, one off the tourist log of fun. So now let's define some of these English words (laughs) that we don't know. Okay, so hominid. As in, how it's used, white-skinned hominids burning pink against indigenous brown. Hominids is defined as a primate of a family, hominidae, that includes humans and their fossil ancestors, and also, in recent systems, at least some of the great apes. So they're they're comparing white people to primates. Interesting. Ooh, it's kind of racist. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, no. What are we talking about? Wait, you can't compare, like, races of people to animals. Well, I don't think it's necessarily singling out, like, because white-skinned is describing the kind of hominid. So it's saying that there are different kinds of hominids. What? And there are the white-skinned hominids that are also sunburned, but there are also indigenous Again, brown hominids. they're not the indigenous brown. Yeah, but like it's like oh. it's compare and contrast. Oh. Like the compare is that they're both hominids, but the con- I feel so dumb right now <laughs> talking about this. <laughs> but what does hominid even mean? Is it just person? Does it say human? Person. Is it like saying homo sapien? It's like saying a uh, person, but like fancy, like the scientific name for someone else. Well, that's interesting because it kind of like otherizes. Oh yeah, yeah, the and then foreigners. It goes straight to like beckoned the offerings of mysterious oh Polynesians. <laughs> you not say that. <laughs> <laughs> so what it does in the next stanza, right after it kind of like quote otherizes white people, it shows how like Polynesians are exoticized and Hawaii is exoticized. So fecund means producing or capable. This is a different definition from this one. Lies. Bro. This one says it's like someone who can get pregnant easily. Huh? Or like fecund. Okay, shh, stop it. <laughs> okay, so the definition of fecund is producing or capable of producing an abundance of offspring or new growth. Fertile. 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 Oh. Fertile. But yeah, it's it's like it's talking about like Hawaii from an outsider's perspective. Yeah, yeah. Like exotic and fertile. Yeah. And like an opportunity. Like to be taken advantage of almost. Amber, do you wanna read the third section? Sure. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Sure. Why not? Okay. So number three. Even prostitutes know their profession. But natives? The empire degrades through monetary exchange, leaving quaint Hawaiians dressing as natives in drag for the 10 o'clock floor show, faking a sing-song pigeon with the drunken crowd, hopping for tips. Open! <laughs> oh! <laughs> it makes sense. 
<laughs> I think that that's on purpose. Okay, okay. Hoping for tips after the French kisses. Nothing amiss in the moraz of paradise. Okay, what does moraz mean? <laughs> so, so moraz means an area of muddy or boggy ground or a complicated or confused situation. Ooh, it's kind of a cool word. Yeah, because I feel like when you think of Hawaii, you don't really think of muddy or boggy ground. Um, like, because I'm thinking about, like, Waikiki, how it's, like, it used to be, like, um... A swamp. Yeah, like a swamp. But, like, now, because it's, like, been covered in, like, asphalt and, like, yeah shops and stuff, you don't think of it like that anymore. Yeah, I like the second definition, though. A complicated or confused situation. It works to compare, like, you know, indigenous people to prostitutes. How they have to kind of play a part to create this image of Hawaii as something that conforms to the interests of foreigners and tourists. It's like, almost like an exploitation. Yeah, I mean, that's what, yeah, that's what it is. And then, especially like the hoping for tips after the French kisses. That's what compares it to prostitution, I think. And kind of like, makes it clear that it's degrading. So, the last section, I will read it now. An orphan smell of ghettos in this tourist archipelago. Shanties on the beach, slums in the valleys, corruption and trash everywhere. In the city, immigrants claiming to be natives. In the country, natives without a nation. The democracy of colonies. For the foreigner, romances of aloha. For Hawaiians, dispossessions of empire. Right off the bat, an orphan smell kind of made me think of like the ghettos in this tourist archipelago was caused by the displacement of all the native people due to the tourist economy, really. So it's kind of like reimagining Hawaii as a place that doesn't focus on the parts that attract tourists, but the parts that people want to hide so that the tourist industry can keep profiting really like the ghettos and how the native hawaiians are being displaced and then the slums and the trash and the corruption but then in the last standard that goes in the country natives without a nation the democracy of colonies i think it kind of draws a relationship between colonization and displacement yeah because it's saying that after the colonization Native Hawaiians were left without a nation, really, even though they were expected to assimilate. What she's proposing actually happened is that they just were kind of pushed to the side or abandoned or orphaned, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this section kind of speaks for itself. I don't know, I always think it's interesting, like, how bad the homeless situation is here in stark contrast to the tourists in Waikiki. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what this made me think about especially like the first section about shanties on the beach slums in the valleys corruption and trash everywhere what i thought was interesting was that last stanza for the foreigner romances of aloha for hawaiians dispossessions of empire so it's kind of like the different perceptions of what hawaii is and even the word romances implies like an idealized understanding of what aloha is and then for hawaiians hawaii is representative of like what they lost like the current state of hawaii is representative of what they lost like the word aloha is actually pretty interesting should i go into it sure okay like a lot of like especially um like tourists they come here being like oh it's the aloha state everybody's just so chill and happy and just do whatever you want everyone's nice like punch me in the face aloha state you know 
Oh, it rhymes. Love that. Only almost. <laughs> but what aloha really means... Okay, let me look up the definition. Let's see what Mary has to say about it. Because I learned something kind of different. Can you explain who Mary is? Oh, oh. <laughs> Mary as in Mary Kavena Pukui, a Hawaiian scholar who made the first real, like, comprehensive Hawaiian dictionary. Like, the missionaries tried before, but it didn't turn out too hot. <laughs> okay, but aloha means love affection compassion mercy sympathy pity kindness sentiment grace charity greeting salutation regard sweetheart lover loved one beloved loving kind compassionate charitable loving to love <laughs> be fond of to show kindness mercy pity charity affection to venerate to remember with affection to greet hail greetings hello goodbye <laughs> farewell alas so there you go it's a very complex definition. It's not just love, and it's not just be kind. It's all the acts that are thought to encompass what love is, and it represents what Hawaiians understand love to be, which I think is a very beautiful concept if you try to understand how different cultures understand love. And because like Hawaii and Hawaiian culture put such a big emphasis on what they understand love to be, I think it's even more important to understand what Hawaiians think love is. I mean, I can't say that I have like the most comprehensive understanding of what like Hawaiian culture thinks that love is but i know like my teachers they thought they said that the traditional meaning of aloha isn't just be unconditionally kind to a person because the elite back in the day they weren't like kind they wouldn't be you know no matter what i love everyone all loving like jesus they, they weren't jesus's like because what they did because they understood that they had a responsibility they would act in a manner that wasn't always quote kind end quote but was always for the well-being of the people so that's how they understood love to be was something that was selfless but implied a deep responsibility yeah because a lot of the times it's like almost played as something to take advantage of yeah people have this misconception that it was because of the aloha mindset or whatever that hawaii was able to be exploited in the way that it was but i don't think that that's necessarily maybe because, you know, none of us were there back then, so we can't say, but yeah. I don't think that that's how that happened. I don't think that Hawaiians are just, like, you know, slapping, slap them in the face <laughs> and be kind, you know? Mm -hmm. They're kind conditionally because in order to perpetuate love, kindness has to be conditional, is what I think that they believe. I don't know, that also might just be, like, my idealized perception of my own culture. <laughs> yeah. Well, since we've gotten to the end of the poems that we wanted to share today, we want to talk a little bit about Honani K. Trask mm -hmm. and how she became an activist on top of being an author. We have a little biography. Mm. Um, Honani K. Trask was born on October 3rd, 1949 in San Francisco, California. She had Hawaiian lineage from both her parents, and her mom was from Maui, and her dad was a lawyer from Kauai. Hanani K. Trask graduated from Kamehameha Schools on Oahu, and then she went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she received a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in political science. She was also involved in a bunch of radical groups while she was at college. And then after school, she came back to Hawaii to teach at UH Manoa and taught Hawaiian studies. She also co-founded Kalahui Hawaii, 
Kalahui. Kalahui. Mm-hmm. Is there supposed to be a... I believe so. Wait, let me look it up. Okay. Oh, I was right. Oh, my instincts. Wow. My Hawaiian so cool. language instincts. She co-founded Kalahui, a native Hawaiian organization fighting for self-independence with her sister. They protested a lot for the U.S. government to return the land to native Hawaiians. And return sovereignty, right? Yeah. Is that it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, if you, like, go online, you can see some of her speeches. She was like, I, or I will not consider myself an American. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's a sentiment that's shared very commonly today. Yeah. People call themselves Hawaiians instead of Americans. I can understand why she is kind of controversial, though, because she called herself a nationalist, like a Hawaiian Islands nationalist. Like, the definition of nationalist is kind of like, has kind of imperialistic undertones. So nationalism is identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that's how I understood nationalism to be. It's like, you don't want to, you want to be patriots, but you don't want to be nationalists yeah so i can understand and she had kind of some radical ideologies like sovereignty i mean we we can debate about like but you you have to agree that's like you know having hawaii moved from a state to an independent nation is pretty radical interesting lady very smart lady you should um, check out some of her works because she has some very interesting thoughts and she was a part of like a lot of the you know civil rights stuff that was happening at the time she's not only representative of hawaiian interests at the time or you know representative of like a population of hawaiian interests at a time but also as a part of the culture of like the civil rights movement which is a very interesting time so as always, we'll have resources linked on our website for you to check out. Definitely check out Honani K. Trask's poem some more if you haven't already. It'll all be on our website at www.boundlessvoicesshi.org. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can also follow us on Instagram at boundless.voices to keep up with what we will be reading next Ooh. for the podcast. So next on our list is Eva Which Way by Tyler Miranda. And we actually have an interview this time. So very exciting and please tune in. He has a lot of very interesting things to add to the story. And I think it's definitely will be a watch for people who enjoy Eva Which Way and want to learn more about the symbolic meanings behind a lot of the themes and his creative choices and the part of his life growing up in Hawaii. Make sure that you are following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so that you are notified when we next upload and be sure to give us a good rating and review and we will see you on the next episode. Bye. <laughs>